I heard a story one time about a company that was losing money. And when they looked at their books, they looked at their strategic plan, they looked at their staff, everything seemed on par. Like everything seemed like they were doing everything according to what they had planned. However, they were still losing money. The profit margins were shrinking and they could not understand why. So they went through all these different uh, tests and started asking questions, started surveying uh, the people who were coming in working to see maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody's stealing something. So they set up a security guard and they questioned and checked each employee every day before they left the building. They would check their, their purses for the ladies, they would check what, you know, everything that they had in their pockets, and the employees were like, man, what is really, really going on? One day, one by one, as employees were leaving the building, they were checked to make sure that there was not anything being stolen. There was one gentleman who every day, he'd come to the security checkpoint, and the security guard would check his pockets, they would check his box, he had a box, they'd check his box, and they would see that there was nothing in the box, and they let him go. And this happened for weeks on time, and they could not figure out why they were losing money, what was happening. What they did not realize is that this man was robbing them clean and blind of their boxes. <laughs> they were looking for the wrong thing. Now, have you ever experienced something in your life or a situation where the thing, the very thing you're looking for is the biggest thing in plain sight, right? It's the most obvious thing before you. However, we have the tendency sometimes to look at other surrounding details or to be looking at or focusing on minor details. And this is kind of the scenario that we see stirring here in the first century church. Today we're going to walk through a little bit of church history, not too much, but just a little bit of church history in the scriptures. And I want to, um, for any of you aspiring students of the scriptures, uh, if you have not uh, heard this yet, the book of Acts is a great accompanying book when you're studying some of the other epistles, right? So we're going we're gonna to go back and forth, so get ready. We do have it, most of the scriptures here on the screens, but you might want to take notes, and you might want to pull out your Bible, pull out the phone in your Bible, so you can roll with me. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you, the freedom that the gospel affords us, God. Father, we want to be committed. We want to be steadfast to what you have called us to be steadfast to, not the wrong thing. We don't want to focus on the wrong thing. We don't want to maximize things that should be minimized, God. We want to be razor-focused on exactly what you have called us to do, who you have called us to be in this season. So I pray, Father, that you can use me, an imperfect vessel, an overrated person, a communicator, to preach an, an underrated king and our Lord Jesus for your glory and for our edification. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What we've been learning here throughout our study of Galatians is that when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our right standing with God, when it comes to even, if you will, what some would call, what many would call, our Christianity, like the essence of our Christianity, right? Our faith. 
What we've been learning is that the gospel with God, let me make this clear, with God, not necessarily with man, not necessarily in our culture, and unfortunately sometimes not necessarily from the pulpit, with God, what doesn't just matter most, but what matters only is the gospel and the right gospel. This is life or death for us, y'all. This is the one thing that matters the most. Now, I may sound like a broken record for what you heard last week, what you heard the first week, and hopefully what we try to present every week, whether we're studying Galatians or not. <laughs> our hope, our only real hope, right? Our only real chance at hope, at life, at love, at quote-unquote success is the gospel. That's it. That's it. As I said, that's, that's it. I need to connect with my young people. I need to connect with my Zers and my millennials. Maybe not the millennials, but the Zers. The millennials, y'all getting kind of old. <laughs> spoken, like a, spoken like a true boomer. No, no, no. I'm not a boomer. I'm not a boomer. God bless the boomers. Anyway. <laughs> what I want, what I'm trying to communicate to us is the stakes are high. The stakes are critically high. We don't have time to waste, family. And there are many lies out there. There are many competing ideas about God, about church, about black folk, about white folk, about the culture. All kinds of ideas, seeds that are being sown that we easily and sometimes so readily can, can receive and take in. And if we aren't careful, by careful I mean equipped with how to be on defense, with how to contend, we'll start thinking in ways other than God has called us to think. And the way I put it like that is because I do believe that it starts in how you think. Scripture tells us as a man thinks, so is he. So what do you think about the gospel? What do you think about your response to the gospel? What do you think about the consequences or the fruit of the gospel in your life? Please hear this. The gospel is not the results of the gospel. There's a, a, a pure, untainted, but clear sense of what the gospel is that we've been trying to communicate and communicate and say over and over and over again. And we do this because this is why Paul is so intense. So if I, if I seem a little intense, I'm nowhere near Paul's level of intensity. He received this gospel, this untainted, this pure gospel, and he's getting wind that it's being manipulated, that it is going through the filter of man's idea about God and about Christian success. Let's just call it that. He's getting when that, that, that the people that he loved and spent so much time with and poured into, they're starting to add to what he had given them. They're starting to forget what he had given them. So again, the gospel does not just matter most. It's the only thing that matters. When it comes to our right standing with God, when it comes to our approval, 
What I'm saying is, again, forgive me if I sound like an echo. But all the spiritual things that we, we want to do and we kind of look at as I'm, I'm growing in God, I'm not saying we should throw those things aside. What I, and what I mean specifically is my level of devotion. Do you spend time with God every day? Have you like set apart a tithe, if you will, of your day that only belongs to him? Amen. We should do that. Do you have a regular time when you're reading the word? Whether it's you're turning pages, whether you're, you're swiping on your phone, whether you're playing the audio Bible, do you have those times? Amen. I see some heads nodding. Some are just looking at me. All good. Like it's no judgment. Praise God that you do those things. We do those things from a place of, of being loved by God. We don't do those things to attain more of God's pleasure. We don't do those things to attain God's approval. I could go on and on and on, but that is the gist of what Paul has been trying to say to them. There are people who are trying to seduce the people of God by adding things to what the gospel is. Because there is a proclivity of human flesh, like we like to get our hands on stuff. Right? We like to feel important. We like to say, yeah, I did. I was able to do this, God. You see your boy, I got up early, two weeks in a row. I fasted, I'm doing pretty good, only messed up one time. You see, your boy got, and, and, and I'm not saying that's totally wrong. However, if we start to attach our approval based on that, then we're headed down the wrong path. Now, I almost feel like we live in a time in our culture where that may not, that may even not quite sound right to us <laughs> because everything about us is performance-centered. Everything about us is like you, you work hard and you, you reap the benefits of it. So Paul here is fighting. Get this. He's a great teacher, right? He's been trained well. But Paul is not just a teacher. He's contending. He's a fighter of truth. He's fighting for what we would call the freedom that comes with the gospel. Paul knows that the stakes are high. He knows the stakes are high. I need that to just kind of resonate with us. I want you to look at your neighbor. I know we don't do this, but just look at your neighbor and say, the stakes are high. Look at your other neighbor and say, yo, the stakes are high, yo. <laughs> uh, I thank God for Paul's passion. I thank God for his boldness and his willingness to, to stand up for the truth against those who... We're creating this mixture of law and grace. I thank God for Paul. Can we imagine what we may have if it were not for his steadfastness and his diligence? And we recognize that God, working in and through humanity, working in and through the Apostle Paul, right? But God is looking for hearts that respond to him and that answer the call. Paul answered that call. Oh, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Because of what God did and because of how Paul responded in obedience and because of his courageousness, his courage, and his boldness, we don't have to be circumcised to get right with God. That's kind of at the forefront of this issue here. And because of this, because of that, we see the gospel bursting forth 
from beyond just a Jewish community into the Gentile world. It's bursting forth. The stakes are high. The stakes are high. Sociologists and other commentators have, have called the era that we live in now, all kinds of, 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 of you know, names and words and phrases we put together to help us understand. Postmodern, post-Christian, post-pandemic. And all of these things just kind of help us make sense, not only where we are, but how we should move and how we should respond to as we understand the way that people are thinking. The stakes are high. When you think about those things, I don't really even have the time to unpack all of that, but the stakes are high. Legacy is on the line. Legacy is on the line. Yes, your specific legacy, like your last name, your family, what God has put in your heart, right? But way infinitely more important, and I pray that this is the case with you, that your legacy is attached to a greater legacy, the gospel legacy. There's a gospel legacy. Gospel legacy is on the line. How we articulate the gospel, what we think about the gospel, what we know about the gospel matters. Probably, arguably, maybe not so arguably, more than anything. More than anything. So I need to back up a little bit. I need to remind you of where Paul is coming from. Bear with me. Galatians 1, meet me. Verse 11, we're going to roll through this. Paul is saying, for I would have you know. Um, let me give you a minute. Let me give you a minute. <laughs> my bad, my bad. I'm, hey, I'm excited. I'm, <laughs> take a deep breath, Sonny. Galatians 1. This is reviews. I'm, I'm going to go by this kind of fast. If you did not hear this message by Pastor Fonz last week, check the YouTube and the podcast. Amazing job. But I want to just give us a little review here. Verse 11, Paul says, for I would have you know, brothers... I don't know why I said brothers, that's sarcastic, sorry. <laughs> brothers. <laughs> actually, I do know why. <laughs> this, this passage actually has a lot of sarcasm in its tone, a lot. Paul is ticked. Paul is tired of this church, man. <laughs> Paul is tired of this church. Paul is tired of these people. So he's like, yo, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it, get this, this is important, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Wow. Talk about switching teams. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. I was among my people so extremely zealous was I. For the traditions of my father, I was killing the game. <laughs> he was killing the game. Like, he's a, kind of a big deal. Get this, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Wow. I got to say it again. But when he who had set me apart. need you to know something, family. Regardless of the circumstances that you see in your life right now, regardless of the things that have happened to you, the things that maybe you have done, you've been set apart by God, in God, before the foundation of the world. 
He called Paul and he calls us by his grace. Paul helps us understand why in verse 16 he says, talking about God, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So then we see like some very, very specific reasons, right? Some intentionality. God is real deliberate. This is why I saved you. This is why I delivered you. She might preach among the Gentiles. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anybody. I didn't go to anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again. Returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So we're getting a little bit of Paul's like autobiography, right? He's just kind of giving us a little bit of his story. I love this. Like you got you to gotta be able to trace your story. You got to see like God's hand in your life, in the, in the areas of your life that don't really seem godly, right? But you got to see God at work in it. Why? Because we can see in the scriptures he sets us apart before the foundation of the world. He's still in your mother's womb. Before you're in your mother's womb, he sets us apart. So he's, he's at work and he's been at work. This reminds us of the, the, the providence of God. The providential care and hand of God, even through difficulty. I love here how we see that Paul says, like, I, I, I stayed with Peter 15 days, but I wasn't, like, going just trying to, like, you know, talk to all the apostles. And these guys were very influential. These were, these were guys among the, 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 the followers of Jesus that had great reputation. They had authority given to them by Jesus. Paul was very strategic and, and careful, though, in what he communicated, how he communicated, and who he communicated to. Stay with me. Please stay with me. So he sees Peter, right, for 15 days, and he says, I didn't see anybody else but James, the Lord's brother. Now, why, why do we have that little bit of information? There is another James who is actually one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples. That's not this James. Another quick sidebar here, we see the, the stepbrother of Jesus James being called an apostle. So here we see someone outside of the 12. This is one of the few examples we have of an apostle that was outside of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. And it was James who was actually the leader in the church of Jerusalem. He's the leader. So perhaps that gives us some reason there why we see Paul after, you know, three years in Arabia and then 15 days with, with Peter and he makes contact with James. So when we get to Galatians 2, we see here more of this scene unfolding. We see it in three scenes. And we're going to walk through our, the rest of our time together today with kind of going through the three, scene, the three scenes, almost like a movie or like a play. We're going to see how this develops, how it unfolds, and how the gospel is preserved. Somebody say preserved how the gospel is preserved, all right? So the first one we see Paul being very intentional with is preserving the gospel through private consultation. Mm -hmm. He's preserving the gospel through private consultation. Meet me in Galatians. Galatians 2. We're going to walk through this. Verse 1. So Paul catches us up 
In Acts 9, we see the Damascus experience where he meets Jesus, right? And he spends three years in Arabia and 15 days with Peter, hooks up with James briefly. Then Paul says, after 14 years, so there's a span of, of, of 17 years, right? Now, some scholars, there's some uh, other speculation. Is Paul talking about 14 years from his conversion or 14 years from Arabia, right? So we're talking either 14 years or 17 years. Either way, that's a long time. What were you doing 14 years ago? What were you doing 17 years ago? I don't even want to think about 14 years ago in our lives. Like, man, that was a, my, my youngest son wasn't even born. <laughs> That's a long time. Paul here informs us that he went up to Jerusalem for the second time after these 14 years. Again, that's a long time. But we know when we just read, he spent the three of those years in, in, in the desert of Arabia, and he's as part of his training process. Not only with man, not only with people, not only with rabbis and great teachers, but with Jesus. He has his revelation, something that's given to him by Jesus. No wonder Paul speaks with the boldness and the conviction that he speaks with. After 14 years, after 14 years, that's what this narrative is about. Now, let's back up a little bit more. I told you we're going to jump around a little bit as we unpack these three scenes. Uh, let's go back to Acts 9. Acts 9, chapter 26. Now, peep this. <laughs> and I, love, I love how we can see God, the Holy Spirit specifically, working through the church, working in and through people, men and women. Like, this is beautiful, y'all. I want you to know, like, this is your history. This is our history. The Acts, the book of Acts is not just the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles, right? This is our history here. This is the, 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 the initiation and the advancement of the early church. All right, Acts 29, 6, I'm getting my roll through this pretty quick. Verse 26 says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, that he being referred to there is Saul. They knew about old boy. They knew his history. They knew his story. And they were like, hold up, hold up. <laughs> That's a wild boy. I'm not, is he really saved? <laughs> Let's make sure that my man is really in the faith. It says, they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas, I thank God for Barnabas, y'all. Barnabas was a prototype of encouragement. His name actually means a son of encouragement. It says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. That's the road to Damascus. He had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Why would a conversion? From killing Christians, from being a menace to the church, to now preaching the Lord Jesus in a relatively short amount of time. Barnabas saw it. Barnabas, I'm sure, got wind. Barnabas, like the rest of the church, heard of these stories of Paul. Saw, right? And I'm sure he had feelings. But the Lord moved on Barnabas. Thank God for Barney. <laughs> he saw something. He saw something. And he began to speak into his life. You know what? We need Barnabases in our midst. Like some, all of us will not like, be in a setting like Paul where you're teaching. Maybe you won't necessarily be, you know, the, the main person or the main name on anything, right? I don't know. 
I'm not even saying you aspire to that, but, but, but it's so important to have people who, who can encourage us and who can connect us from different seasons and, and different networks. And, and, and this is what we see Barnabas doing here. He's that, that connector. And he, he gives Paul a safe place to, to meet the rest of the church. Verse 28 says, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Wow. Like we see like this tension of not knowing what to expect from Saul, Barnabas coming, like the, the, the Hellenists kind of like rising up and they're having a problem with what the church is doing. Like all of these things that are happening around them and, and like the stakes are high. The stakes are high. There's a lot on the line. When we look at what's happening in our world in 2022, like do y'all even realize what the last two years have been like for us? Like we all need therapy. <laughs> we all of us need therapy. Yes. 2020 alone was a doozy. And I, I, I can't walk us through that, but you lived it. You, <laughs> you were there. And, and, and the things that are happening around us, like I want us to, 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 like to work to see the meta-narrative, the overall plan of God and the advancement of the gospel through the events that are happening in our world around us and not the other way around, right? Not to, not to see the gospel through the cultural lens. Not to see the gospel through the political lens. Not to see the gospel through my, my health and welfare, so to speak, right? No, it's the other way around. So, so, so all of these things in, in the first century church, we see the tension arising and, and, and God moving in the formation of the church. And then fast forward a couple chapters to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. What happened? What happened? We thought, like, the church was multiplying. It was going great. Well, again, I, won't, I don't have all the time to unpack it, but what we see happening in the early church, there was a deacon, a man full of faith, who was stoned because of what he stood for. for. And scriptures tell us in Acts 7 that Saul, young Saul, was actually there. He was actually there as a Pharisee. Can you imagine as a young man seeing that? How that would affect you and impact you? Can you imagine even as Stephen was, was being stoned? Stephen, the Bible says, he preached. He glorified God with the, his words. He preached a sermon like it's likely that Paul participated in the stoning, right? But, but, but let's not lose sight on the fact that he heard the gospel. So while there may not have been immediate fruit, while there may not have been an immediate reaction or response to what was taught or what was preached to him, we see that a seed was planted. And eventually that seed bore fruit. I want to encourage you. That maybe you've been preaching the same old message to your cousins, to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers. And the message you've been preaching, it appears that it ain't working. They're not listening. I want to encourage you to be diligent. Stay faithful. Keep preaching. 
Make sure you're preaching the right gospel. Keep preaching. Keep loving. Stay right there in the pocket. Don't give up on them. This is what we see as one of the most effective tools in the early church, their steadfastness and their discipline, even in the midst of poor results, even in the midst of suffering and devastation. They're staying at it. It's amazing to me how God moves providentially in the most um, unlikely places in our lives, even the tragic ones. There was a 16-year-old young woman who um, got pregnant with someone who lived in the neighborhood. And this person was of a different culture, a different ethnicity. And the mother of the 16-year-old was livid. She wasn't having it, right? So she did not even give her an opportunity to think about what it would mean to have a child and take care of that child. She makes her give her up for adoption. So she gives her up for adoption, and this baby um, is, is first in the hospital and then in the orphanage for a few years, and uh, nobody really wants to take her because, number one, she had polio. Number two, she just looked different. And this, this was a scenario that was unfolding in our city in Detroit, and this has been around the 1950s, 1953, 54, 55. She had polio, and she just looked really, really different. Didn't look like the other babies. And, um, and until there was a family who could not have children that walked into the orphanage that day, saw her, took one look, and said, we want her. We want her. And again, they looked very differently from her and from the rest of the family, but they picked her. And they loved her, and they nurtured her, um, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, they grew up uh, in this church, going to this church, attending mass here, attending the school, the parochial school next door. And that, that child in the orphanage was my mom. And about 20 years or so ago, we started to kind of do some research. It's the only reason why we know all of this, on her history, her, her like biological family. And we discovered that her mother was uh, of Creole descent and had moved up here with her, her mom and her brothers and uh, had a relationship with and got pregnant by uh, a Mexican brother. And, um, and uh, so she could not keep the baby, gave her up for adoption. What we found out though is in 1975 on Christmas Day, my grandmother, my mother's mom, was riding north on I-75 and got in a car accident. Um, and not only did she die, but the entire family died. Her husband at the time and her, her three brothers, her two brothers. Her two brothers and her children. Maybe it's one brother and, and, and three children. We, we're still, you know, it's a lot of information we're trying to gather. I remember hearing this story and feeling so overwhelmed. And my mom looking at her and having like some kind of opportunity to kind of piece the put together the pieces of her life when something that she always saw as such a, 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 a tragic, like, emptiness and a tragic, like, void, not having, you know, not knowing her biological mother and thanking God for a family that would love her, but still feeling like something was missing and then finding out that her mom, her mom wanted her. Her mom wanted her. But then her mom, in a tragic accident, lost her life. And I just, I, 
I'm reminded of that story as I think about the different events and things that, that happen to us that go on in our lives. And guess what? It ain't all good. It's not always great. But if we can somehow see, back up a little bit, and, 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 and look for God's hand of providence. And when we can't see God's hand of providence in the moment, we must learn still to trust him and trust that he is good. He is always good. He's good all the time, all the time. He's good, yes, but he's also good before time and he's good after time. His goodness is not based on time. <laughs> when time got here, he was good. He's good. He's so good. And our understanding and our perspective of his goodness is not just based on how it makes me feel. It's not just based on my situation or things that are going on in my life, but it's based upon his overall plan, his glory, what he's after. And until we can see him as 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 holy, as set apart, as other than, as righteous in, in every way, we'll struggle with, with, with understanding his goodness. We'll struggle with it. We'll misinterpret it. Oh, God. I'm, I hope that you can be encouraged today and even things that you don't, you don't know. And I'm not saying like me, you're going, we found out that information, praise God, right? Years later. There are things that have happened I'm sure in my life and in your life that we may never find out on this side of glory, right? right? Can we still trust him though? Listen, the stakes are high because what happened as a result of that, my mom, my mom met a churchy, (laughs) I mean churchy now, but back then he wasn't that churchy in that culture, but third generation church of God in Christ. Pentecostal, classic Pentecostal denomination in the world, right? Probably the premier Pentecostal, black Pentecostal denomination. Grew up three generations. She meets him just up, you know, my mom lived a couple blocks from here. And they start to, to, to court and they get married right here in this very room. They get married. My mom grew up Catholic, gave her life to Jesus, began to confess faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And they raised me up in that. They raised me up in that. If it were not for those events, particularly the adoption, like, ah, I don't know, I may not be here. My sons may not be here. Right? Like, 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 can we just back up a little bit and, 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 and reevaluate the things that have happened in our lives? And, and I'm not saying we can figure out every little thing, but let's just have a sense of peace. Like, God, I believe you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. You are good. So we see through, through, through Paul, then Saul, you know, having this experience as a young man and seeing, you know, the, the stoning of Stephen. And then like, he has this encounter with Jesus. Then the church begins to reluctantly, but eventually, like, kind of, like, take him in. And he, he has this consultation, this private consultation, so to speak. We see something beautiful happening in the church. The stakes are high. This was not a mega church in a sense where it's like super popular. Like this was, this was something that was, that was growing. It was multiplying, right? But there were a lot of adversaries. There were a lot of threats. There were lots of threats. Verse 20. But some of them, but there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, 
spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Did I read this already? Sorry. Okay. Just making sure. No, no, no. Okay. There's a similar passage. I'm just making sure. I, just, I want to unpack for us just the different scenes that God like, took Paul through because that's kind of what Paul is we, we, recounting here in Galatians chapter 2. All right? So again, verse, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, where? To Antioch. To Antioch. Antioch was in the region of Galatia. All right? Antioch would have been considered Galatia. Galatia wasn't a city. Galatia was a region. It's kind of like, you know, Metro Detroit or southeastern Michigan. It wasn't one city. But it's this region, this region and Antioch was a part of that. So it says here that we see the church, the leaders, the church of Jerusalem, James is the apostle, right? But all the leaders there, they send Barnabas. And verse 23 says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Good times. Amazing times. What God is doing with this church. Verse 26, and when he had found him, I'm sorry, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now we see Saul being brought into the picture here. Okay, get this. He goes to Tarsus. He looks for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in, the Ant and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Did you, did you hear that? This is the place that they were first called Christians. Now, there's some speculation on why they were called Christians. There's some who believe, some scholars believe, that this was like a, a political attempt uh, to frame them to the government, right, to belittle them a little bit and to, you know, kind of present them as a threat to the Roman government. But, but the main thing I want us to understand here was this was a term that the world, right, non-followers of Jesus in Antioch begin to call them. Why am I emphasizing it like that? Sometimes we can be so caught up in labels and words, like, well, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? We had a question, a phenomenal question that came up in the Bible study this past Wednesday where someone asked, and I was talking to a Hebrew Israelite, and they were saying that, um, that you know, why do you call yourself Christian? Why do you call yourself Christian? I don't want to mess the, the question up from Linda. Is Linda here? Okay. Linda, what was that question that you, you asked again? Uh-huh. Okay. So, and, and I feel like I remember you saying, like, they were almost, like, questioning, like, the veracity of that term. You, like, you call yourself a Christian? And, and this is what I want to just kind of help us understand and sit with. Like, yeah, that term, Jesus didn't call us Christian. <laughs> God doesn't say, you shall be my Christians. That was just something that the world saw and said, oh, you know, Christians, they're the ones that are following Christ. So before we, like, get too bent up, you know, print out the T-shirts, I'm a Christian, you know, like whatever, I don't know. It's, it, it, you know, we live in a, you know, some would say a post-Christian time now, so there was a time where it was popular, it was advantageous, even as a politician, as an entertainer, to say, you're Christian, 
It was popular when you win a Grammy to, to start off by giving thanks to God. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if we live in those times anymore. So when it's not popular anymore, then what are we to do with this, with this term? You know what I'm saying? Let's, 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 let's make sure that we, are, we understand what God has said about us, how God has called us, what God has labeled us as. Disciples. My, my children, my sons, my daughters. We see the, the church eventually, this name, this term about them that arises called the way because they were showing us the way and the way is following Jesus, right? So, so just a little side bit there. So, so Antioch in the region of Galatia was the first place that people began to look at those who are following Jesus and they called them Christians. And verse 28 says, and one of them named, I'm sorry, verse 27, now when these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, uh, so much to unpack here, we don't have time, but I love how we see the five-fold ministry gifts starting to take place in the church. Listen, some of us ain't ready for this. Some of us, you know, you're like, oh, I can't wait, I'm, I, I need prophecy, I need the prophetic utterance. We see it here in the early church. Agabus came down and he didn't just, uh, he didn't just uh, describe the word. He didn't just forth tell. He foretells. What are you saying, Sonny? There are two types of prophecy. One, forth tells. When you are communicating, you're describing, you're explaining what has already been said in the scriptures, right? You're declaring it, you're proclaiming it. But then there's foretelling, meaning God has spoken to you. God has given you some direction. And that must be communicated. And God does that through Agabus. And Agabus prophesies that there is a great famine that would take place all over the world. So the disciples determine everyone according to his ability to send relief. What do they do? What do they do? They dig in their pockets. They're so generous. And they see what they can gather to send all over so that the church could be cared for. Sending relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So when we piece together Galatians and Acts, we see a bigger picture, right? We can see Paul's intentionality. Now, I want you to just, I'm going to sweep through this. I got about 15 or so more minutes, all right? We're going we're gonna to get through this. Acts 13. Acts 13. I just want to highlight this first few verses here. Again, this is the, the very early days of the church. This is a picture, a beautiful picture of what God was doing even in the midst of, of suffering and, and, and difficulty and having to basically flee and run for their lives, right? Verse 1 says, now there, was, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. <laughs> Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. What up, Niger? Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod and Tetrarch and Saul, of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, again, in the early church, we see the leadership looking like a picture, a demonstration of what some will call what has been labeled five-fold ministry. That term comes from Acts chapter, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. When Paul talks about, he's writing the Ephesian church, and he says, and Jesus has given these gifts like he gives gifts, apostles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Five gifts. Apostles, 
prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I, I, like I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit when going through this passage here to just kind of highlight this for us. Here we are in this moment, six and a half years or so old, and we've had a very uh, a, 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 a deliberate approach to what we are preaching, making sure that we have a solid handle on what the gospel is, on what the gospel isn't, making sure we are doing a good job at that, making sure I, me personally, I'm unlearning things that, that, that I've allowed to, to, you know, to kind of interfere in my understanding of the gospel. <laughs> right? There are aspects, though, of what we see here in a growing, developing, I would even call a mature church that we haven't experienced yet, Detroit Church. Doesn't mean we won't, we just haven't yet. So if you're here and you're looking for that, number one, be patient with us. Number two, pray with, pray with me, pray with us. Number three, like maybe, maybe you're the one that God's going to use to demonstrate some of that. Now, it's a whole lot that we can teach on that because, it's, you know, it's a whole lot. And, it's, and it's, unfortunately, there's even some controversy with some of that. But I fully believe that the Holy Spirit is still moving today in the church like he moved in the early church here. And what we see is a beautiful picture of unity, not just harmony, thank God for harmony, but, but, but unity. Even when we don't agree on everything, even when we don't have harmony. You know, the five-fold ministry gets spoken there in Ephesians 4 can be likened to a man's hand, right? The apostle is kind of like the thumb. The apostle governs, right? He, it's mobile. It touches all the fingers, feel me? The, the prophet can be likened to the, the point of finger. Like you point, when we tell somebody where, the direction to go, when you say we're going this way, Normally, we aren't like pointing with our ring finger. You want to go, not doing that, right? We use, it guides. So the apostle governs, the prophet guides. We're going in this direction. The third one is the evangelist, right? The evangelist is the longest digit on, on most hands, right? It, it, the, the evangelist is outreach. It's, it's extending and advancing the, the cause of Christ and the ministry of the gospel by proclaiming, right? Then we have the ring finger, the shepherd, the pastor, right? The pastor guards. So again, the apostle governs, prophet guides, evangelist gathers, shepherd, pastor guards. The pastor must be a man of love. Hmm. Must understand what God has called him to guard and to protect. And then the last one, the teacher. The teacher is like the pinky. The teacher grounds, okay? The teacher gets in difficult places sometimes that are hard to get to. Now check this out. We, we see here the prophet and the teachers <laughs> coming together at the church of Antioch. Like, prophets normally are like, hey, God said this, this is what we're doing, we're going this way. Teachers are like, ah, uh, hold on. <laughs> Let's see, like, where is it in the scriptures? Let's make sure. <laughs> What's the Greek word for that? What's the Hebrew word for that? What's the context? <laughs> like, getting prophets and teachers together sometimes like cussing. We see, though, the unity and the beauty of the early church coming together. Family, this is our history. This is our DNA. And this is what God is doing among us. I believe there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers sitting here. Now, that does not mean go out and print out your business card, you know, your website. <laughs> Pastor Sonny said, I'm an apostle. No, I'm not saying that, right? There are uppercase and lowercase apostles and prophets and all of them, right? Amen. But, 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 but these gifts are still in operation because the Holy Spirit is still in operation. And the point of these gifts, the point of this ministry, is for the building up of the edification of the church. It's not for your personal ministry. No, because the church needs it to grow into maturity. 
Ah, all right, I got to move on. My time is almost up. All right. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, verse 2, Holy Spirit gives this instruction, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Barnabas and Saul on Cyprus. So being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. What a beautiful picture. This is a model. This is a pattern of what it means to go, what it means to be sent. We don't just leave a church or go somewhere just because we feel God saying or because I don't like the pastor, this person offended me, I don't like the music, I don't like this, I don't like that. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're sent. The Holy Spirit said to send them. But, but, but hear this. I love the picture. We're going to see this a little bit later too. The picture of the Holy Spirit speaking, right? But also there is this agreement and confirmation among the leaders, among the church. In other instances in the early church, in the book of Acts particularly, we see it said, the phrase used, it seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit, right? There's, a, there's an acknowledgement that God is speaking. There's confirmation. There's accountability, right? Not just some lone ranger in the faith doing whatever you want to do. That's not how this works. Amen. Oh, man. I hope, you, hope you're following me here. So Paul and Barnabas, they go. They go from city to city. We see the journey looking like Antioch and then Cyprus, then uh, Pisidia, and then Iconium and then Lystra, then Derby, then back to Antioch. All of this is happening during Paul's 14, the, 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 the span of 14 years. And while they're going, we see the church mushrooming. New Gentile churches, new Gentile believers, followers of, followers of Jesus sprouting up everywhere. It's expanding everywhere they were sent. Detroit Church, God has called us to be a sending church. A sending church. I believe that God has called us to send people all over the world and all over this city. And some of you, I believe, are called to be sent. And when the time is right, we will lay hands on you according to the biblical pattern and model that we see here. So they return back to Antioch. They're excited. The Lord is advancing the church. Because God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But hear this. There's trouble in paradise. Back to Galatians 2. Y'all thought I forgot. <laughs> Back to Galatians 2. There's trouble in paradise. Verse 2. Paul says, I went up because of a revelation. Remember that word? Paul, we, we saw him in Acts 9. Paul got a revelation. He didn't just get a good idea, right? <laughs> he didn't have an inkling. He got a revelation from Jesus Christ, and set before them. Get this. He set before them. Who's the them? The apostolic leadership, right, that we just saw. And he says, though privately, before those who seemed influential. Now, just a little, one little quick caveat. This passage, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, is probably, likely, or arguably one of the most discombobulated New Testament passages. It is a nightmare to translate. Scholar after scholar, translator after translator will tell you that. And most of them attributed to the fact that Paul was upset, Paul is livid, Paul is intense, right? And he's trying to explain, but so there are many words and verbs that are left out. There are a lot of parenthetical kind of phrases, as we see one here, as the translators try to understand what Paul is saying. There are certain words that he, that he uh, not only leaves out, but sentences that just he doesn't properly end, like... You can sense the emotion 
and how important this is to, to him as he's trying to explain to them in this letter what had happened. He wants them to know, like, I'm not just like, I didn't just come up with an idea about the gospel and, and say, hey, well, how about this? No, I got a revelation. And I didn't come up, come up with it by myself. He says, I said it before, though, though privately, because those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. We see here the beautiful tension that Paul is demonstrating between revelation and reason, between spirit and structure. Like those things don't have to operate like in, 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 in worlds far apart. Like God has given us minds and a spirit. Amen? God is a spirit. He speaks to spirits, right? But, 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 but we try the spirit by the spirit. And we also can understand when someone gives a prophetic word of someone says that God is saying whatever to them, what we do is we, we go to the primary source. Does it sound like our God? Does it sound like the God we see in the scriptures? Is there precedence here? Is this, or is someone just kind of making something up? Because please hear this, that happens. That is why we have what we would call false religions. That is why we have cults. That is why people are getting uh, drawn away because they heard from God or they, an angel came and gave them a message but they didn't have a private consultation with anybody. And if they did, those people did not compare it to what we have been given in the scriptures. That's my timer. In the name of Jesus. Not yet. <laughs> I'm going to have a private consultation with my... All right, I'm almost done. <laughs> but, so Paul says, I'm going to have this consultation with them because, not because I'm like nervous about, like, if, did I really hear from God? But Paul knows that the gospel is at stake. The, 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 the purity and the power and the, the truthfulness of the gospel is at, stake, is at stake. So he receives this revelation. He goes to Jerusalem and he, he obeys God. He meets with them. He doesn't start announcing the revelation, right? He doesn't, he doesn't pass off flowers to a, a town hall meeting. He has a private meeting. Again, not because he was unsure about it. He's convinced. Not, not only that, he's not impressed by their influence, <laughs> But he honors protocol, and he understands authority. This is, this is what we see as balance. I love this. Now, what is the outcome? Look at verse 3. The outcome is this. But even Titus, who was with me, Paul writes, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Remember, the whole issue here is circumcision. For do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised to be considered legit Christians? He says here, even Titus, who's with me, who is a full-on Greek, he's a full-on Gentile, he was not forced to be circumcised. What that means is Paul passed the test. His gospel cut the mustard. This is huge, especially for Titus. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, nobody's shouting like Titus. <laughs> they approved his message wholesale. He goes on to say, like, they didn't add anything to him. Because he had the right gospel. They didn't have to tweak it. They didn't have to make any kind of adjustments. He had the whole message. He had the right message, not a different gospel, not a different message. And Titus didn't have to get circumcised. Titus was likely a bacon-eating, like, full-on Gentile, 100%, right? 100%. You ain't heard a, a, a praise. You hear that? A Titus praise. I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just saying. He's the happiest guy in Antioch. Now, the second scene, we see the transition here. First one again, preserving the gospel through private consultation. 
Secondly, preserving the gospel through public convocation, through public convocation. Verse 4 says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Family, this is serious. And listen, the enemy has no tricks. Paul calls them here spies. In Acts 20, he calls them wolves. And he says, I'm going to come up from among you. There are people in the household of faith that come in with, with ulterior motives, that come in with other agendas to dilute the gospel, to dilute the power and the, 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 the consequences of the gospel. They dilute, they dilute it. Paul is, Paul is saying, listen, like, this shouldn't be so. They brought you into slavery, these false believers from Jerusalem. They caused them major problems. Now, Really quickly, I'm almost done, y'all. Here, bear with me. Y'all still with me? Yes. Amen. All right. Acts 15. This is where we see this whole scene unfolding, Acts 15. He tells it like this. The, the writer is, the human writer is Luke. And he says in verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Whenever you see some men come down, like you, problem. It's a problem that's stirring, right? Just sticking their nose into a situation that they have no business. It says some men came down teaching. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hear this. This is fundamentally wrong. You can't get this part wrong. Or it changes the entire essence of Christianity. We cannot get this wrong. And Paul and Barnabas ain't standing for it. Thank God for Paul and Barnabas. Thank God for Paul's conviction to contend for the gospel, for the, the true gospel, the right gospel, because the, what we tend to do is we like to, to, you know, to add to it. We like to put our hands on it. And the Ten Commandments eventually turns into 617 ceremonial laws to keep. It's like that one string that, that you see start to come out of a sweater that you know you shouldn't pull. <laughs> you try not to pull it, but once you do, it unravels the whole thing. That is what the enemy wants to do through these spies and through these, these fierce wolves to unravel what God has given us. They know that once they allow one part of the law to come in, the rest will have to come in as well. So their conviction is no compromising. No compromising at all. Circumcision is it's not what God is after. Like, I want you to know this. Do you know that as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you've already been circumcised? Hello? You are already circumcised. You've already experienced the full meaning of what circumcision represents. How? The circumcision of the heart. That's what God was ultimately always about. And it already happened for you. Do you know when? Anybody know when? Ah, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 10 says, And you have been filled with him, you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, glory to God, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, what's interesting is 
Paul is advocating for this because he knew that it was an unnecessary addition for, for Titus. It was a damaging addition for Titus to be circumcised. However, however, we also have a biblical precedence for Timothy, who wasn't 100% Jew, uh, Greek. He was half Greek, half Jew. And Paul decides Timothy actually needs to be circumcised. What's the difference? What's the difference? Titus circumcised, Timothy not circumcised. Was it about like just their own feelings or their own religious convictions? No. No. So here's real quickly what I believe why. Number one, like I said, Paul, Titus was a pure Greek, and Paul knew that. Timothy is born of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. The people that Paul resisted in here in this passage in Galatians chapter 2, they were false brothers. The Jews to whom he, he caters to in, in Acts uh, 15 and 16, like those guys weren't even Christians. They weren't even Christians. So the pressure in Galatians 2 specifically is from professing believers to another believer to perform this extra work of grace. And Paul, for that situation, is like, no, we're not having it. But in Timothy's case, it's a little different. In Timothy's case, what is at stake is the unbelieving Jews who are looking at the gospel, looking at Christ, and saying, well, do we need to do it just like them? So just as Christian freedom caused Paul to resist Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus' circumcision, the same freedom allowed him to resist Timothy's. Now, I want you to think about this. There are often things in the culture that we have to navigate as we look to preserve the gospel, things that, 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 that maybe in of themselves aren't sinful, right? But if we're not careful, they can become problematic to the heart and the purity of the gospel. I want to give you four laws in preserving the gospel. I'm going to run through it. It should be on the screen. I don't have a whole lot of time to expand it, but I want to give you this. Four laws in preserving the gospel. One, the law of liberty. What it simply means is we are free in Christ and in Christ alone. We're not free by performing these religious duties. We're free in Christ and in Christ alone. The law of liberty is the first one. But the second one is the law of sacrifice. Now, I have talked about this before, so some of you, this may be, uh, you know, going over it again. But the second one is the law of sacrifice. What does that mean? Although I'm at liberty to do certain things, it may not always be the third law expedient or beneficial to the cause of the gospel, so I sacrifice it. Again, the law of liberty, the law of sacrifice, because it's not expedient. The third law, the law of expediency, because of the fourth law, the law of love. The law of love. This is what we have in the gospel as it locates us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin, through the love of God. As you are thinking about the relationships that you're in, your family, on your job, there are things that that may offend you in the way people respond or the way people act. Maybe it's profanity. Maybe it's the way someone's dressing. I don't know. We all come from different backgrounds, right? But I want to encourage you to, like, to, to reserve that offense for things that are coming against the gospel. Right? But there are other things that people do just because that's kind of how they came up. That's who they are. Like, like where can we kind of get into the culture, get into, like, a relationship with them where we can walk with them, we can affirm them, and we can love them. While we may have a liberty to do certain things, doesn't mean that we're not saved if we do those things, but we're going to sacrifice them because they're not expedient to the cause of the gospel. 
Not just expedient to me and what I like, expedient to the cause of the gospel because of the law of love. That makes sense? Amen. Amen. All right. Back to Galatians 2, verse 5. So, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Please hear this. Paul and Barnabas were not backing down so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for me, for you, for us, for the Galatian church. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, Paul says. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. We just kind of covered that. Paul is not being disrespectful to them. Paul is saying, like, God is not a respected person. So I'm going I'm to honor them. I'm going to... He went to them. He had the private consultation, right? He wanted to present to them the revelation that he had, and they affirmed it. They didn't add anything to them because his message was complete. Then that leads us to the third act of a scene of preserving the gospel, preserving the gospel through personal confirmation. This quite possibly is the most important scene here because this is relatable to all of us. What God does is he takes what the enemy meant for evil. Glory to God. He turns it for good. Verse 7, it says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I love how we see the, the fruit of the prophet Agabus's word, that there was a famine coming. So the church is still, they're, like they're, they're thinking about the resources and the, the generosity that needed to be spread about. And Paul says, amen, I, yeah, I'm, I'm on it. That's, that was on my radar. Now today, family, we celebrate liberty and the spirit and freedom in Christ because God used people like Paul. God used people like Barnabas. God used people like James. I didn't even get into James, but I love how James, James is the apostle of Jerusalem, remember? So this Acts 15 occasion where they are, they're dealing with this matter of circumcision. Peter speaks. Everybody has a word. Finally, James is the apostle stands up. He says, men and brethren, and he begins to affirm the gospel, the same gospel that Paul has. And I love how in, in and affirming that, he goes to the book of Amos, which we covered in our last series, right? And he talks about, in the book of Amos chapter 9, that God is going to restore the tabernacle of David. And the tabernacle of David is this beautiful demonstration of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, coming together. Now, if you know anything about the tabernacle of David, it's not just some boring or drab or uninspiring piece of property. Oh, no. Oh, no. It was beautifully designed and arranged with art. We see a demonstration of, of all these things that, that all point to the glory of God, that point to the multifaceted beauty and wonder of a creative God. We see this in, in demonstration. I believe one of the things that God is doing is going to use churches like Detroit Church with all kinds of hues and colors, and generations, and denominational backgrounds, where we are coming together as one people. But it's important to remember that we aren't just you, we aren't together in some harmony that's not united in truth. Please hear this as the musicians come. Right, our, 
Our unity is not because we don't like the same things. Our unity is not birthed out of our concern for social justice. Please hear this. I can easily do the right thing with the wrong spirit. And protest and speak out, do all these things rooted in carnality and not in truth. What we see here is this beautiful picture of unity. Like, it's beautiful, it's courageous, it's bold, it ain't safe. Like, God didn't call Paul to be safe, he called him to be bold. God hasn't called us, church, to be safe, he called us to be bold. And being bold and trusting him actually is the safest place we could ever be. This is God's desire for the church. Paul speaks up. He doesn't substitute harmony for unity. He doesn't give up unity just for the sake of harmony so that we can all get along because talking about the difficult things are a little hard for us. And what if people leave? What if people don't like it? What if people misunderstand us? <sighs> harmony not rooted in truth won't last. They're preaching. These two different groups here that we see, James, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Barnabas, same gospel, different approaches because of who God has sent them to. Same gospel, different methods. Listen, I want you to, I want you to pay attention to the journey you're on, the city you're in, the community you're living in, the school you're going to, the people that God has surrounded you with. Because there is a, a context, there's a method that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to work through you to tell your story. And not just your story, but the story of the gospel through your life. And I believe the Holy Spirit, just like he moved in Paul, just like he moved in Barnabas, wants to rise up in you and to anoint you to tell that story for the glory of God. Anybody want that? Listen, the stakes are high. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.